This is one of the traditions of debate, right? What is the role of violence, right? And uh, where is it um, justified? You know, how should we pursue it, right? Uh, you know, and 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 it's it's very important that these are these are these are always not just not simply pragmatic questions. They are pragmatic questions in the sense of like, well, how do we best accomplish our goal, right? And our goal is, for example, freedom from slavery, right? So there's there's a pragmatic question of what's going to work, but there are also, you know, questions that are that are uh, more about what it is to be a human being, right? Yes. Uh, th- that are always at stake here, right? Questions about dignity, questions about about the value of freedom right uh, that are coming up when we have these kinds of debates around violence hello this is robinson Earhart here with the introduction to robinson's podcast number 178 and this episode is with pins the podcast and then chike jeffers and lucius outlaw chike is Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy at Dalhousie University, and Lou, on the other hand, is Professor of Philosophy Emeritus and W. Alton Jones Chair Emeritus in the Philosophy Department at Vanderbilt University. And both of them, both Chike and Lou, research, among other topics, the subjects of this conversation, which are African and Africana philosophy. Uh, the latter of which is a term that I learned in this episode Lou himself invented. We get a pretty broad introduction to the themes of African philosophy and then Africana philosophy, which emerged from the former in the diaspora. But more particularly, we get into themes like violence and hope, uh, racism, slavery, uh, the roles of aesthetics and then various forms beyond uh, journal articles in the, in the tradition. And for background, you should check out Lou's article on Africana philosophy in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And then Chike's work with Peter Adamson and Jonathan Ganeri on the history of Indian and Africana philosophy podcast, links to both of which you'll find in the description. So I have to also mention that reviews, likes, subscriptions, comments, all these things are so helpful. seems like I've been getting a good number more on Apple, but I need some more Spotify reviews. So if you're listening on Spotify or Apple too, uh, please leave more reviews. That's super helpful. Now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with GK and Lou. The philosophers in most departments in the United States today, I think, focus largely on on the Western world, whether that's ancient Greek or ancient Greece or or modern Europe or what's written in contemporary analytic journals in philosophy. And in no department that I've ever been at have I seen a course in Africana philosophy, which I think is sociologically quite interesting. And this makes me think that I ought to ask to start out with, since I I don't think one, this is going to be a super simple answer, and two, 
a lot of our audience might not be familiar with Africana philosophy, just how the two of you think of Africana philosophy. So what is it? Well, if I might start, and TK, you weigh in whenever you, the spirit moves you. Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, the term Africana is what I call a covering term. Uh, it, it, in some ways, the term works like we might say the term Europe works. So that Europe is a term that covers a huge geographical expanse within the context of which there are lots of different nation states, peoples, histories, cultures, etc. But it's a, in a sense, it's a gathering term, a term under which lots are gathered. And there's a presumption of very important commonalities, actually definitive commonalities, uh, by way of which that term can cover all this expanse of geographic expanse, but also historical and cultural expanses are soon to be appropriately covered by this one term because what is covered includes some quite definitive commonalities and similarities as well as differences, et cetera. So the term African philosophy is meant to cover articulations, expressed thoughtfulness by various people, African and of African descent, whenever and wherever those articulations are forged and, and given expression, however they are. So it's been at this very high level covering much the way the term Europe covers or the way the term the America covers or the term South America covers. But if you, as you start to descend from that high level, you begin to get into the particularities, the distinctions, as well as the commonalities. And as you get lo lower to the ground, you're constantly trying to adjudicate the question well, what are the shared similarities and our commonalities and the differences? And as John Dewey might ask, what are the differences that make a difference? And once we take up the differences, do are the similarities still so compelling that the term makes any sense to do all this gathering work? So that's so in some sense the term is a heuristic covering term, but it has to be made good on much closer to the ground by getting in and beginning to look as close to the ground as you possibly can at various people's histories, cultures, articulations, language, all of that institutions and cultural life and find those things that are similar, common and different. And then revisit the question, well, does the covering term really do the work that we had anticipated heuristically? Or do we have to let go of Simpsons? What I would uh, add is that um, I definitely count as someone who thinks we don't need to let go of the term that, you know, that it does significant work. Um, and some of what I might add in support of that, uh, when we say that uh, it can't, it, it covers uh, philosophy uh, by Africans and also people of African descent, right? The, the phrase people of African descent there, <clears throat> it points to important historical processes, right? What we, what we call the creation of the African diaspora, 
Uh, and, you know, with diaspora being this term that means, you know, scattering of a people outside a homeland. Right. And so because uh, the modern era, so to speak, right, because, you know, in the last 500 years or so, one of the most important factors in world history was the scattering of African people outside of Africa through uh, especially the transatlantic slave trade. Right. And, and and the creation of these diasporic African populations. Right. So that that particular uh, history right, is is part of what the term is able to address. Right. And, you know, uh, and the other point that I'll just quickly make to, again, say what I think sort of makes good on the term uh, uh, you know, t- to use loose words, <clears throat> you, you know, you have figures in the tradition who, uh, you know, themselves are are awkwardly pinned down to one, let's say, geographic location. So to take a figure from the 18th century that that I've thought a lot about, Kwavna Otoba Kugoano, right, who wrote uh, a book. Uh, commonly referred to as Thoughts and Sentiments on the Evil of Slavery. So that book, which came out in 1787, you know, was written uh, in the UK. So maybe you, you know, maybe you want to call it Afro-British. You know, at the same time, he was originally from what is now Ghana, right? So maybe you want to call it Ghanaian, but that's actually confusing because they didn't have country uh, they didn't have the same borders that give us Ghana today, right? And so maybe now you want to say his specific ethnic group, the Fanti people, right? Uh, but then, you know, to really understand his thought, you need the fact that he experienced slavery in the Caribbean, right? Particularly Grenada, and he's known to have also visited uh, certain other islands while while enslaved in the Caribbean, right? So if we just take that one figure, um. Africana, right? The way that it's a covering term very easily catches him, right? In a way that when we start thinking of these other terms, well, okay, they're, they're doing well enough, but they're certainly not telling the whole story, right? I, to me, in that situation, Africana tells the entire story or tells tells you the foundation of the story that you can then fit all those other geographical pieces into. So that would be, for me, one of, uh, one of the examples of why it it has, to me, proven its value, right, as a, as a heuristic term. Both of those answers were really great. Could you, GK, repeat his name? Because I'm not sure I quite yeah. caught it. Yeah, so he's known as Kwabana Otoba Kugoano. And just to, I'll, I'll spell that partly because it's even just interesting. Um, there's some some interesting aspects to the spelling of his name. So uh, so when he, when he published uh, his book, um, even though he had been using the name John Stewart in mm. correspondence, right? Um, he he found it important to publish the book using his African name. This is also something that his friend Olada Equiano, uh, who wrote uh, a book called The Interesting Narrative and Autobiography, he too, you know, found it important to use his African name, even though he was also known as Gustavus Vasa. In any case, coming back to uh, Kugoano, right? Uh, well, the, 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 the last name there, Kuguano, we spell C-U-G, 
O-T-T-O-B-A-H-O-O-T-O-B-A-H-O-O-T-O-B-A-H-O-O-T-O-B-A-H-O-O-T-O-B-A-H-O-O-T-O-B-A-H-O-O-T-O-B-A-H-O-
for oneself under these historic conditions. And that's worthy, I think, of a seminar in any self-thought reputable philosophy department in any place. Mm. Or as GK's generation might say, I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) I, I couldn't agree with you more. I never even thought about that. I mean, in in most, and I'm not the end all be all final arbiter of the analytic philosophy of naming, but questions of naming in analytic philosophy typically concern causation, uh, reference, possible world semantics, and never do you really hear about self-understanding and these sorts of historical concerns. But Chike, I'm so glad that you brought up Kwabna Otuba Kugoano because I hadn't yes. come a- I hadn't come across him in my mm-hmm. preparation, but he totally exemplifies the uh, utility of Africana. His background does. I mean, why this right. term is so useful, and right. something that I should that I think is worth uh, mentioning before we go on. And this idea of a covering term is so neat and so useful because, I mean, it's obvious to you too, just how expansive culturally, culturally, socially, uh, and geographically Africa is, uh, especially when you take into account this scattering that you just mentioned, yes. Chike. But I don't think everybody realizes it. And I certainly didn't realize this because it's mm. downplayed in uh, history books, in today's culture. So I first realized this my freshman year of undergraduate when I was taking uh, a class on uh, the history of Royal African art. And our professor had a slide on the screen in which he showed like a conventional globe or a picture of a map. I don't quite recall in which Africa looks pretty small, but then he showed the same image where things are actually, the, things are the size they actually are. And Africa just totally consumes Europe and the United <laughs> States. It is so much bigger than both of them, but we, I treated or thought my entire life as if Africa was kind of just this homogenous country sized mass right. out there. Well, maps are very, very interesting. I mean, one of the things I have wanted for a very long time would be to have uh, a a graphic, something graphical on a computer where you could take the continent of Europe, for example, and for a particular, a longer timeline, have the borders of what is considered Europe shown and then show as you say you drag across the timeline, see what happens to the borders of what is called Europe, mm-hmm. but also see what is happening to the borders of what are called states, uh, principalities, or municipal, or whatever at any given time they were called. If you drag along that timeline, what does that look like within? across history, what do those borders look like? Mm -hmm. And if you could just have a graphic where you just pull slowly across the timeline and watch what happens to the whole configuration 
as well as what's happening internal to that configuration in terms of states and borders and et cetera, I think it would be pretty, I mean, you have, we'd have to give up on certain naive notions about geography and the determination of geographical boundaries uh, as though they are naturally fixed in some ways, you know, I mean, because we now know even borders are even shorelines are being changed by what's happening with the earth. And that's not new. That is, you know, walking across the Bering Strait. Well, you can't exactly walk across the Bering Strait anymore, right? So that the shifting of the geography of the earth has been going on for a long time, but we have these notions as though they refer to something fixed. Right? And you know, at one point there were the analysts who thought if we get the reference right, we've got everything nailed down. Well, that to which we're referring isn't as stable as sometimes we thought, particularly if you were going to impose a kind of logic on the referent that it had to be stable in some way in order to do the referencing work. Good luck with that. That didn't work out very well as a, as a strategy of philosophizing, right? So it's interesting to begin with. And again, to me, this compels us to come to terms with the evolutionary history of our species and all that goes with that in some sense. Yeah, and I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. I imagine, though, that borders just in their own right are a huge component of African and Africana philosophy. I think I read in the SEP article that, for instance, uh, Egypt was something that Europe was in a way kind of always trying to steal from Africa and classify as the Middle East, as part of the Middle East for some sort of... Yeah. Well, Hegel was explicit about it. Hmm. Hegel was explicit about it in his philosophy history. He says, there's nothing happening below the Sahara Desert. There's nothing happening there that is worthy of historical consideration. And let's remember, the term history is doing really, really crucial, critical work for him. So when he says there's nothing historical happening, there's a way in which these are not history-making people in the sense of what the human beings are. Egypt, if you've got pyramids, it's a little hard to say nothing is happening there, because, right, just thinking, well, how the hell do you build this? I mean, I've been to the pyramid. It's pretty. I mean, I can remember one of my expressions was standing beside a pyramid, which, you know, is, you know, it's interesting when you stand, when I stand any place else and look up at the sky, right, and you see clouds moving is one thing. It's another thing when you stand beside a pyramid, and I had a sense that the pyramid was stationary, the sky was doing something else, but this damn thing was so massive, mm-hmm. so massive that the, the the universe moved around it. As it was, it was. I mean, it, I was just so awestruck by the sheer scale of the thing, and that they are constructed out of blocks of enormous size, but rather exact proportions, and further. If you're standing by a particular one, you can see all the way to the city of Cairo and across the other side of the city. And a guy is saying, oh, yeah, these were mined in a quarry 
way beyond what is now Cairo and then brought over here. You see, they're like, well, there were no 18 wheelers. There were no cranes. How the hell did they quarry these big stones? And I mean, these are huge things. And then figure out how to stack them. I mean, they weren't mixing concrete. They didn't have glue. They had a way of stacking and ordering these with tunnels inside the stairs and all of this. And you sit there just marveling at this. And so Hegel is like, okay, those people south of the Sahara, okay, they don't have anything historic, but this stuff up here in Egypt, this is clearly historic. So he just says, Egypt, we must annex to Europe. He just outright says, we must annex Egypt to Europe. And mm -hmm. everything else below that we can forget. Mm -hmm. There's nothing there of historical significance. Yeah. Something I, I'd, I'd add, um, you know, you were reflecting on having had a sort of a, a smallish Africa in your head, right? And a, and a, and a more hom homogenized, you know, Africa in your head. And, <clears throat> and so it's absolutely uh, important um, to emphasize in response to a history of misinformation, right? Uh, you know, that, that Africa is so much more diverse to speak just of Africa. And then of course, adding the African diasporas again to add more diversity. Right. And so, uh, and so that's right. But at the same time, right. Even this phrase, Africana philosophy is doing what it's unifying that yeah. diverse, uh, array of spaces. Right. And, you know, there's Africana philosophy, you know, another another important term that I would introduce here uh, is Pan-Africanism. And and Pan-Africanism, we could say, is, is an important strand within mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Africana thought generally and Africana philosophy in particular. Right. Uh, and, and so Pan-Africanism is the view according to which. Right. Uh, in spite of or alongside the diversity that must be recognized there there, there should also be a sense of unity um and, th and then that is going to be the best way for uh, african people to move forward right and and while we can treat that as right in its own way a a, a contentious claim i think that the fascinating thing is uh it is not the case that to be a pan-africanist is to deny African and African diasporic diversity, right? Right, the country. Right. That being said, it is compatible to be a Pan-Africanist and to recognize, celebrate, explore uh, the diversity right, of, of, of African peoples. But that being said, right, to promote unity, you could say can at least make the temptation, right? of de-emphasizing diversity, of uh, suggesting uh, uh, that we are all one way in some sense. Uh, yeah, and Lou and I would both agree that there are folks who have done better or worse, right, at managing mm -hmm. that tension, at calling for unity with or without, right, um, de-emphasizing or, or hiding from 
right? The internal diversity here, right? And and to me, when you when you see that kind of tension, when you see that kind of difficulty, right? It's possible, it is compatible to do both the calling for unity and the recognizing of diversity, right? But there are pitfalls here, right? There are ways mm-hmm. in which you can stumble in trying to do that, right? That is to me just one of the things that shows you why this is a philosophically productive, right? Tradition, right? Because this this there's so much to think about in terms of how to get that right right and and uh so i think that 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 you know that that diversity and also that call for unity one of one which you know is important to, to me and in in many ways orients my own thinking right um that that kind of tension calls for philosophical thinking and and shows what makes to me africana philosophy so fascinating mm-hmm I have a, a a few thoughts. I mean, it you already demonstrated with um, Kwabna Otaba Kubuano that we really do need this term, and it does a lot of great work. But I also see how there could be some downsides because people from the outside, uh, like me, before I'd ever looked into this subject at all, when I see that there's just something labeled as Africana philosophy without having looked into it, it suggests to me that, oh, it might just be some myopic set of concerns. It's not really labeling this huge, expansive genre of work. But of course, once you get into it, then you see that that's not the case at all. But Lou, I I was really struck by your description of the pyramids. Uh, (laughs) And now I've never really, I mean, it was very literary, the idea that you look at them and it's as if the world moves around them and not, not the other, or the sky moves around them, not the other way around. But that just, that description, I mean, and how in the ancient world, they were only really matched by the great wall. As far as these massive architectural constructions goes, it, and of course for Hegel would, he would have to, uh, move it to Europe to substantiate his racist, uh, agenda. But, so we've pan-Africanism has come up and I have already referred to African and Africana philosophy. And before we started recording, Lou mentioned that it was important to distinguish between these two. And I think that maybe before we go on, I should just ask how you distinguish Africana and Africana philosophy, African and Africana philosophy. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah again, you know, um, just, just take up, you know, what in two cases earlier, so to mention, um, when you think about African, let's just say what has come to be called the continent of Africa as a place of emergence, first of all, of Homo sapiens, but after many hundreds of years of the migrations of Homo sapiens out across planet Earth, settling and evolving, we begin to get uh, some quite sub- substantial differences within the species. Huh. Phenotypic, genotypic, cultural, you name it. We get very interesting differences among uh, different population groups of Homo sapiens that come to be called races, but we won't venture down that rabbit hole just now. Um, what the covering term allows us to do is to make distinctions 
under the covering, right? So we can say, well, there were people who evolved, emerged, continue to reside on the continent that we has come to be called Africa. There were, in a certain moment in history, interventions by people from other parts of the world, call it the Arab world, call it the European world, coming into this place that is going to be called Africa and appropriating human beings and moving them out to other places under the auspices of enslavement and all that allowed the rationalization justification of that. So one of the things is once you get that happening, what you've got in one sense is a very directed, complicated program of directed evolution. As you move people from one place to new locations and begin to organize their lives in particular ways, even designed to reproduce and replicate them through breeding programs and et cetera, while you've got interpopulational mixtures going on, some comes underrated. So you've got this really interesting directed evolutionary venture underway. So as people move to various, are relocated to various places, this, this is voluntary, and are forced into settlements there under enslavement, and that persists for hundreds of years, well, you've got interesting social, historical, cultural developments happening in those places. The regimes are not the same. British enslavement is not French enslavement. It's not Portuguese enslavement. It's not Euro-American enslavement. Because there are differences among those enslavers. They're not a uniform group, right? So there has got to be attention to what's different as well as what's common. Mm-hmm. That all of that has got to go on, to my mind, all the time you've got to be looking for similarities and differences, literally recording them, and then trying to figure out what are, what are the things, how do these come together to make for particular subpopulation groupings in various places? And how do the people begin to respond to the conditions of life in those places such that they feel compelled to make sense of what their lives are about? But not just that, not only are they making sense of their lives, they are also making beauty. Hmm. They're creating art in many different forms. They're not just suffering. Mm-hmm. They're just not always on their knees lamenting. And they are also, even in some of the worst of conditions, they are finding ways to, in the words of Jesse Jackson, to keep hope alive. Right. They are finding ways to propagate across generations. They are finding ways to instill in subsequent generations the wherewithal to persist even when they accept that in all likelihood they will never live to see their lives come to fruition. 
and yet they continue day in and day out. Mm-hmm. So part of it is to understand what was it about these dispersed peoples that they came to have a sense of about themselves and about life, even under these conditions, that for the greater majority of them, life was still worth pursuing. Still worth pursuing. I mean, to me, that's one of the most mind-blowing aspects of my consideration of folks African of African descent. That in spite of it all, there was this refusal by the overwhelming majority of people to persist, but not just to persist, not just to survive, is what they were doing. I mean, the way in which some of them were engaged in just trying to think and then articulate what they were thinking about who they were, where they were, what the conditions were, and what, right? And let me just add this final thing, that one of the things that continues to absolutely blow me away, and I, to me, it is highlighted again by what's happening involving Israel and Hamas, what's happening in Gaza and the West Bank, etc. JK, correct me if I'm wrong. I know of no tradition propagated by folks African of African descent within which they cultivated and sustained a commitment to destroy white people. The, the tradition, no by and large, stands against that kind of uh, of genocidal impulse. I, th- I think that, that you're right about that. I mean, <clears throat> you have, uh, you know, I think you do have. Uh, I would say in the 20th century, you know, you have you have uh, people who um, use rhetoric of that kind at times, right? Um, it's it's not uh, right. It stands against the mainstream of the tradition by far. Yeah, that's uh, what I'm saying. You, you may have someone who, a person or even a small group who may come up and like, say this, but what to me is striking is it doesn't become, number one, institutionalized and no. therefore become an ongoing, cross-generational, perpetuated tradition. Right, no. I mean, I it is just... That astounding to me after all that was done all that was done here's another way in which I concretize it think of an enslaved African African descendant woman on a plantation who's working in the big house now she could have adopted an attitude a posture that said one way to bring this to its knees is to kill all the white children that I care for so they can't grow up to be enslavers. Or since I'm preparing the food for this family, I will poison them all. And we're going to get all the black women who work in these homes to agree that on the same time, we're going to poison all the families we serve. We're going to bring this to their knee. 
my sense, my own experience growing up with my mother and maternal grandmother and other black women who cared for white children, they never entertained any idea that they should visit upon the children any retribution for what the adult white folk were doing, ever. And is the idea that you would punish an innocent child for the sins of their parents? No, you don't do that. But they never even thought that it, they should punish the adult whites with the retribution of like endeavors from what they were being sucked. You know, my grandmother she said to me, son, the only, the only way you can keep somebody in the ditch is that you got to get out in the ditch with them. Mm. Don't get out in the ditch with the white man. I mean, that absolutely just, when I look at what's happening now, the notion that, oh, an eye, not only an eye for an eye, but two eyes for one eye. We'll take all your eyes, your teeth, and your ears for what you did to, in taking one of ours. And you sit there and go, okay, how is this supposed to play out long term? And I'm astounded by the lessons offered up in history by folks African African descent in that regard that has not been attended to. Never declaring war on white people. Never declaring war on white people. And I asked, why? And my proposal is there were some ethical decisions being made about what would be appropriate and that such war making would not be appropriate. Uh, well, one thing I'll jump in to add here is that, you know, uh, some people I think would uh, automatically think of someone like Malcolm X, or if they happen to know a bit more, maybe even someone like David Walker, <clears throat> when listening to Lou here, and they may want to use these two figures that I just mentioned, Malcolm mm-hmm. X from the 20th century and David Walker from the 19th century is, uh, as as ones who, who were for war on white people, right? I mean, the, the uh, you know, I, I was careful to say that, you know, the kind of genocidal impulse that I believe Lou was speaking about, you don't see it in Malcolm or in, in Walker, right? What you do see uh, is an attempt uh, to... <clears throat> to bring back people toward a readiness to use violence, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, self-defensively, although when we're talking about uh, self-defense, you know, in the um, uh, Walker case, you know, this would include, right, you know, not just the case where someone's actually being violent towards you, but a, a case where where violence will help you escape enslavement right you know and then uh you know we can even also bring in here uh the importance of uh france fanon and the wretched of the earth and and what he's saying about anti-colonial violence right mm-hmm. to to now uh and france fanon is originally from martinique uh but he ends up in africa um based in North Africa, really, for the for the final part of his life and um, uh, an anti-colonial revolution in Africa is something that he's very uh, concerned with, involved with. You know, he is uh, he works with the the 
FLN, which is the revolutionary party that was fighting a war against France for Algeria's independence. And so um, precisely because one of the, you could say, dominant aspects of the tradition is a let's say a certain kind of generosity and 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 uh and a slow you know uh, an encouraging of slowness to violence or even forbidding of violence right so in pacifist traditions that we have in the africana tradition right you know in response to that you get right other figures who are saying actually if we if we care about our own dignity if we care about our own humanity right uh, we have to be able to express this through violence where necessary right in order to uh, affirm human freedom you know affirm human dignity right and our right to be here uh, as people right and so 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 i paint that just to 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 suggest that this is this is one of the traditions of debate right what is the role of violence right and uh where is it um justified you know how should we pursue it right uh you know and 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 it's it's very important that these are these are these are always not just not simply pragmatic questions they are pragmatic questions in the sense of like well how do we best accomplish our goal right and our goal is for example freedom from slavery right so there's there's a pragmatic question of what's going to work but there are also, you know, questions that are that are uh, more about what it is to be a human being, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Th- that are always at stake here, right? Questions about dignity, questions about about the value of freedom, right? Uh, th- that are coming up when we have these kinds of debates around violence. And, and just, you know, the 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 Daily Walker case is an interesting one for me because it follows how many young figures throughout the doll store and answer the concept of the kicking, how astute many of them became about the uses of rhetoric. Frederick Douglass is to me one of the masters of rhetoric. But let's just take David Walker. <laughs> so David Walker writes this text which he's making this declaration about what slavery right? But when you stop to think about it, then what the subject, the subject figures on whose behalf he's doing this and to whom allegedly this written text is directed overwhelmingly cannot read. So I think it's worthwhile to stop and say, well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's going on here? So if you read the text, it's like, slaves, here's what you all should do. I'm writing something, directing it to you. And he aims it into the slaveholding cell. But most of the slaves can't read. So what is she really up to? Right? And I think you've got to start asking some more nuanced strategic questions about the use of rhetoric because I would offer for consideration his audience is not composed of enslaved African peoples. His audience is really slave owners.
he's 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 gaming slave homes, right? I mean, if you take my generation, you know, how are we how are we supposed to move and motivate, intimidate some white folk? Clench fists, mm-hmm. raise the fists up, black power, right? Mm-hmm. That was supposed to do certain kind of rhetorical political work for you. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm offering for consideration that David Walker is doing something similar. The subject figures, the people to whom apparently he's addressing this text, generally can't read the text because they can't read. So why is he popping it into the Southern slaveholding states? For the slaves? Yeah. Or is it really for slaveholders? Who, and remember, this book gets banned throughout the slaveholding South. I mean, so when we say, well, this is supposed to be a text that slaves are going to take up and read and rise up in revolutionary abandonment. Well, but it's a printed text. We've got distribution issues here. You've got an audience reception issue here in terms of who can actually read the text. So if that's your strategy, dude, I mean, there are a whole lot of problems that have to be solved in order for this to bear the kind of fruit you, you seemingly wanted to have. They read the text and then they go, go act on it, et cetera. You got a whole lot of problems that you got to resolve for that to come about. Mm-hmm. But is that really what it was about? Now, I have thoughts on this, but I don't know if we, like, I wanted well, to let to, you, Robinson, we, we say what you a, wanted to keep going with Walker because, because no, I could, have, I could, I could a, say some more about this, but. We have to do a Zoom on that. We just put <laughs> out there. Because that, you know, again, raises a lot of questions. But again, in the context of this question, is he advocating the wholesale killing, murdering of white people? No. No. So what I'll you know say say quickly on this is I, w- I want to first connect what Lou said to uh, the work of Melvin Rogers. So Melvin Rogers is a philosopher who does really interesting work on the Africana tradition, and uh, in terms of some of what he has uh, written and said about about the, the the rhetorical work that Walker does in the appeal, um, I, you know, as I recall, um, he he like Lou, uh, because in fact, Lou, I think you would agree that you, you, you'd, you'd be attributing to him a double mode of address, right? That, that, that it's not that you'd be saying he's not speaking at all to black folk, right? But oh, that, really? right. But that it would be sort of this both and, right? And so, so I would, I would relate that to what I feel that, uh, that Melvin, uh, Melvin Rogers, um, ha- has said on the matter. I, um, I'm going to go ahead and say I take him more at his word. And what I mean by that is um, so he addresses the text in the title, first of all, uh, to the colored citizens of the world. Right. Uh, but then he also says very expressly to those uh, the United States of America. Right. And so this this already introduces something interesting. Right. Um, it's true that uh, the majority of the people to whom he expressly right like the like the, the it is particularly aimed at the united states and the majority 
uh, of the people he's talking about there uh, are, are non-literate, right? Uh, that's probably true as well for the majority of the the black people of the whole world. But of course, that's already a more complicated situation because forget the fact that it's written. It's in a language that most of the black people of the world can't uh, understand. And most, right? of, and most of whom are not citizens. And right. And, and and that is, you know, that's another thing that, you know, that Melvin loves to talk about, which is the his, his odd choice of phrasing there. Right. What does it mean for him to say citizens of the world? Right. And there's and there's there's all kinds of interesting things to, to, to think about with respect uh, to the work that he's doing there. You know what I would say it just in terms of when I then think of sort of the meat of the text, you know, what goes on in the four articles because it's 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 divided into these four articles so it's just you know you could which you could basically call chapters um you know i think that uh i think free black people in the north are um in some ways his primary target and 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 i say that in a way that like uh in the practical sense, right? So, so Lou brings up this practical question, right? Of, of how are the people that you're directing this at even going to be able to read it, right? And and I think that there is an important sense within which, um, if it gets to no one else, he 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 knows he at least wants it to get to other people like himself. He is a he's a black man. He's originally from the south, but he he's ended up in the north. He's in Boston when he writes this text, right? And and I always tell people uh that you know, when you're telling the history of Africana philosophy and if you're talking about the United States, you're looking at the 19th century. You have a crazy overrepresentation of textual stuff in Boston. Right. In, in Massachusetts. In fact, let me say Massachusetts. When you say Massachusetts, there, there's so many people who you were going to who you're going to talk about in the 19th century from or based in Massachusetts. And if you think about. <laughs> that just on a numerical basis, it makes no sense. Yeah. The, the state, the state that Lou is from Mississippi. Right. Um, or, or, or if we take other states like South Carolina. Right. Um, you know, these are states where you have masses, masses of black people in the 19th century in a way that you have, you know, a, a, a fraction of that population in a place like Massachusetts, right? But because we're talking at this point about a certain textual tradition, right, this is the kind of interesting overrepresentation we have. And so when David Walker is writing in Boston, you know, there's certain things that he wants to say about self-respect, right, and ambition and uh, and what it means to sort of set your face against oppression and and and, and, uh, and figure out how to address it. Messages that I think he's directing to people who, like himself, are literate people in the North who can read. Um, but at the same time, he, you know, he makes efforts to get the text down to the South. Um, there are things that he says in the text that are very much directed at enslaved people. And he uh, he tries to address the, the issue of literacy question because he, he talks about those who get it, who can read, reading it to those who cannot read. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so, you know, I think that I think that it is in many ways a, a fascinating text for being from 1829, you know, originally, right? And and to me, creating a black readership 
that that's in so many ways, you know, loose point is that black readership barely exists, right? In, a, in, a, in an important sense, but 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 I believe he is envisioning, uh, you know, a black readership in a way that makes that text fascinating, you know, and and this will be my closing point in a way that contrasts in a fascinating way with another text by another person from Massachusetts that has been important to both Lou and myself, right? I'm talking about the souls of black folk by W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Which is, which I will again now give a shout out to Melvin Rogers because the, the rhetoric of appeal in that text is another thing that, 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 that he is, he has talked about as well. But if you read that text, that's a fascinating case of a text that, you know, there are people who shortly after it is published are calling it a political Bible for black people in the United States. Right. Um, it is it is it is embraced by a by a growing black intelligentsia of the time. Right. But if you if you, the way that he constructs the reader, he is often constructing a white reader. Right. Right. And so and so. You, you're not going to understand souls if you just focus on the way that he at times constructs a white reader because he knows black people are going to read what he's writing as well. And he and he's intervening into into black conversations in important ways in that book, but but without really showing it. Right. And so so to me, you know, while I think there's something to be said for how even the question of, of what fear you strike into the hearts of, 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 of slaveholder, right? I mean, you know, I'll just give one more shout out here to Kuguano. Kuguano uh, addresses um, white people a lot, in, you know, in, in his thoughts and sentiments on the evil of slavery, right? Uh, uh, in, in somewhat direct ways. You know, Walker, Walker, I think, tries to construct a black public for his uh his appeal you know in ways that i think uh, are, are fascinating and worth um taking seriously so that's my little thought on that. <laughs> i guess i hope you get a sense robertson of the to be gained by attending to these very strange of traditional texts that we have been part of work now for several decades, bringing into professional academic philosophy for consideration and appreciation and critical study, mm -hmm. what we try to gather under this notion of African philosophy. Well, I sense that I'm going to need to do a solo, well, an episode just devoted to Kugoano at some point <laughs> in, in the future. Oh, I mean, I, well, I mean, I think, well, I mean, let, let me, let me endorse that and encourage you to do that with Chico while opening on to uh, an appreciation goal of a way of really rethinking in slavery. Mm. And there's some scholars who are now asking us to be very careful and discriminating in our use of terms and rather than talking about slavery, about enslavement. Mm -hmm. So that we're not reducing 
persons through this institutionalized centuries long politics, that there were persons who were in these institutionalized situations were part of what has been going on for a long time about many scholars in the whole period of that some have looked at and I think mischaracterized, you know, all some of the scholars have tried to prove that black people were human and you know, all this little and like well there was a need to I mean there wasn't there was a denial of humanity going on. So that was an ethnic. But to be able to certainly even within enslavement, what was going on? What I mean just let's just take you know, what were the modes of agency of white folk, even in conditions of enslavement? And we take a title from one of the famous history books, The World the Slave Made. What kind of world making was going on? What kind of agency was being exercised among enslaved peoples in their world making? And what worlds did they make? What were they attending to? They were not simply um, what I would call um, one of these things in horror movies that have no souls that just sort of mm. the zombies. Mm. Um, one of our pet peeves is in recent terms that I found in my judgment reduces folks to zombies. The way in which people would use the term blacks are a black. And I will say black what? He are ball good. A black you are almost never see the phrase a white. You will see many phrases, whiteies, of black school and able, but I'll hardly never see the phrase a white. White is always an adjective that qualifies person or human being, subtle. Why are black people being reduced? Just color them, they're not. And so, for me, you know, for example, one of the things I have difficulty with, so I simply don't use it. I have always found difficulty using the phrase a Jew. I just find it, for me, very, very harsh. So, I don't use that expression. I prefer to talk about persons who are Jewish, persons who are Palestinian, you know, black people, Jewish people, always are qualifying of our humanity. If we're going to have grounds on which we can work out a lot of what is most problematic for us, we're going to need grounds that involve particularly if it's going to be ethically constituted, we must have something in common. But if our language use does not embrace any commonality, then I think 
this sports is not going to help us get where we need to go. If, if one is simply a Jew or simply a Palestinian, nothing in those phrases, nothing in those highlights anything common about either one. One is a Jew, one is a Palestinian. There's nothing common about them. On the other hand, a person who is Jewish, a person who is Palestinian are both persons. What can we do on that terrain? We can't do much on the terrain of a Jew and a Palestinian because they have nothing in common, dispersing. One's a Jew, one's a Palestinian. Nothing in common. But a person who is Jewish and a person who is Palestinian, oh, now we've got a different discursive terrain on which to work. Speaking of textual traditions, I think this is one way in which maybe continental philosophy is much more productive than analytic philosophy. And then I don't think that these are, again, I'm not the the authority on the analytic philosophy of language, but I don't think that there is that much out there on the importance of distinctions between slavery and enslavement or uh, a Jew and Jewish person and what these things connote uh, as we feel and talk. Uh, but also speaking about textual traditions, uh, many minutes ago, Lou, you mentioned something about, I mean, producing or creating beauty being very important in the African mm -hmm. and Africana traditions. And mm -hmm. I think, and I might be mistaken, you tied it to perhaps an optimism or the thought that we had that um, people of African descent had to move on. And you've also written that you think of philosophy as not only reflective, critical thinking, but also aesthetic expression. And this mm -hmm. was something that really jumped out at me because when I think of, again, the analytic tradition, which I'm much more familiar with, there are a few really great stylists like Quine or Russell or mm -hmm. Ayer or people like that. But I don't at all before, or I didn't at all before reading this, think of philosophy as a substantially aesthetic endeavor. But then I think about people like Langston Hughes, or maybe one might consider jazz musicians as part mm -hmm. of Africana philosophy. Mm -hmm. And then I would also think of Africana philosophy as having a serious oral tradition in a way that mm -hmm. maybe analytic philosophy doesn't. Perhaps this was song or verse the way that maybe like the Iliad or something was transmitted mm -hmm. for a long period of time. So I'm wondering both of you, I mean, how aesthetics play a role in Africana philosophy in a way that most people might not be familiar with in philosophy. <laughs> yeah, I think that, um, when you remember that uh, through either not being literate um, in conditions where that's not a social problem because you live in a generally non-literate culture or being non-literate in a problem where that in a, in a situation where that is a social problem, for example, you are barred from literacy because of being enslaved, right? Uh, you know, that means that uh, 
the, the textual tradition, um, you know, is, is, is in that sense narrowed, right? Uh, and it's important for us to be able to examine a variety of ways in which African peoples have expressed themselves, right? When thinking about how they have expressed themselves philosophically, right? How they've communicated, right? Uh, uh, they're thinking about fundamental questions, you know, um, and so uh, artistic expression there thereby becomes very, one very important source. I mean, you know, <clears throat> you you mention uh, jazz musicians, and I wanted to reflect on that for just a bit because I know that for myself. Um, there's a sense in which I know I tend to focus as a, let's say, a historian of Africana, of Africana philosophy. I tend to focus on that which can be, in some important sense, made textual. And so that would even include something that is in the form of a song, but then we can write down the lyrics, right? And we can talk about about the the, uh, the discursive work being done, right, in those words, right? And so... Uh, there becomes perhaps a challenge to me, right? When we then think about those who who haven't used words, like like your uh, Miles Davis, like your, uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Miles for a second, right? Because I was even gonna throw Coltrane in there, right? But 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 now I'm even grabbing onto the words of Love Supreme being repeated in the song. Well, let me put it, you know, like, because Miles doesn't put too much words in there at all, right? So, 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 you know, what does it mean, you know, sort of to to approach um, him as a him as a philosopher, right? I, I think it's a, it's a it's a fascinating question, right? And one of the I would even say fun things about Africana philosophy, right, is the way that it pushes us to ask these questions about where we find philosophy, right, and you know, the thing that I would say is that regardless of, let, let, let's say you wanted to take a certain kind of hardline stance and say, well, you know, no, you know, a trumpet, you can do all kinds of interesting things with a trumpet, but you can't do philosophy with a trumpet, right? Because you need words to do philosophy, right? Let, let's say you take that kind of, of hard stance. One of the things that you are going to need to do if you really want to enter the conversation of Africana philosophy, right, is you need to, for example, address, you know, a very important person um, called Cornell West, right? And Cornell West himself, in his uh, uh, in in much of what he has had to say about the 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 African American tradition, right, um, has treated the 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 expressiveness of jazz, right, you know, uh, um, as as sometimes more articulate in its own ways, right, than, than than many of the other sources, right, and so you're at least then drawn into a debate, right, about. Um, about why he's wrong about that if you think he's wrong about that right you know and so there's a sense in which even that which seems like it might get excluded on the grounds of like there's not even any words right and and i would sort of agree for myself that it that it becomes hard for me to think about what i'm gonna do um uh given my you know uh general attraction to working with what can be made textual right 
But even there, you know, um, the significance of something like jazz to uh, to the tradition, right? Um, you know, I just I, I used Cornel West as one example. I think Ralph Ellison would be another example. There are important figures uh, who who have demanded that we pay attention to what can be done with jazz, right? And so, so you're sort of forced to come come to it anyway. This is my first thought. Hmm. Yeah, let me just bring two stickers together here. One is Plato. That was Ellison. So, yeah. What are Plato's Republic? Why is there so much time spent in the designing of the curriculum for this mm. musical city mm-hmm. to music and poetry? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Now, Plato is convinced that there's something about um, harmonic sounds yes. that affect right. the soul. Yeah. So part of what he's concerned about in designing that curriculum is, in a very real sense, that curriculum is designed to take the three parts of the soul and attune them in a certain proper ordering. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a proper ordering of the relationship of the rational, you know, the passionate, and if you will, the vegetating. So those three things have to be ordered in a particular way, the same way the city has to be ordered in terms of the classes. Right? And there's something that Plato is trying to get at about the way in which harmonic sounds can affect the ordering for good or for bad. And he's really concerned about that. Ellison, and, and, and he's translated for me, had a particular expression that he uses in one of his essays where he talks about the, the way in which music can do the work of emotional structure. Mm. And so one of the ways he's it's it a way in which time signatures and harmonic structures have emotional consequences for the ordering of the emotions. So if you've got someone who understands that and has a certain kind of sense of attunement to particular signatures, time signatures, harmonic compositions having effect upon the emotions, structuring the emotions in the moment, you can begin to then understand, well, why are there things like soundtracks that have particular takes for particular moments in history as movements are going on? And you can talk about the soundtracks of the civil rights movement, the soundtracks of the Black Lives Matter movement. Why? Well, if these thinkers are correct, it is because there is an intimate relation to be had between harmonic soundings and emotional structure. There's a possibility of an ordering, which ordering can have, if you will, impetus for and toward. 
we certainly see this in church, but we see it in dance homes. Or we see it, we just sit around ourselves and something comes on and we find ourselves patting our feet, you know, moving. We begin to bodily mm. respond to what the music, the ordering of the chords, the tempo pace of the music and stuff. Well, Plato was exploring this, but Ellison explored that. He said, that's part of what's happening in jazz and other forms of music. And Ellison is very discriminating about what some of that should be as opposed to what some should not be. Mm. Because of this emotional structuring that is going on through these musics, and jazz is exemplary of this because for him it is also exemplary at his best of what he calls democratic collaboration. That is, jazz artists improvise. So what you've got is each is creatively free to engage in what is called improvisation. However, that improvisation is within the structured context of a particular number. It may be a church song. It may be whatever. But the jazzing of that is to take that structured whole, stay within the structuring in one sense while improvising in and around it, such that in some ways you know it is still recognizable even when there's all this innovation going on. Because there are some people who are charged with keeping the structure going. It may be the drama, it may be the bassist, it may be the percussionist, They've got certain structuring going that they are maintaining while other people are innovating all around it, but never until you get to some moment in cold traces where let's just let go of all of that and just freely implement. And that's what I say. Well, cold train, if I can't pat my foot to it, you don't lost me. <laughs> but I mean, I think there's, there's so much to the music stuff. Yeah, there is. The way it works into things like civil rights movement, black life, you name it, that there's a deep something going on. And again, it's because I said there were people, even under some of the worst conditions, right? We know there were people, we've had the reports of people on slave ships who jumped overboard and committed suicide. Overwhelmingly, the slaves didn't do that. Overwhelmingly, they didn't do that. And the way under some of the worst of even the civil rights movement, when people were in jail, what did they do? They sang. They say, right? So that music has become this means by which to keep the soul intact, by which nursery one could still cultivate aspirations for a future, even if you accept it, you would not live to see it, but you would damn well determine to pass on that aspiration to others who would live it on your behalf. That's one of the mind-blowing things of me to be found within these traditions of thought. Mm -hmm. It's keeping it alive, the aspiration for freedom. Mm. Freedom not to go and destroy and kill. Not a freedom without white people. A freedom to be shared with whomever, everybody. Mm. And giving up music and days or whatever and never saying don't touch this don't pat your foot to my music hmm. it was no Robinson come on 
Get up and come dance with me, Robinson. <laughs> well, I don't know how to, well, come on, baby, I'll teach you. Got to learn how to move. Am I right, GK? I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I could use the help. <laughs> but, and we all had to learn, Robinson, best, you know, don't let nobody mm-hmm. tell you that we all got it naturally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this this discussion, though, it it underscores for me that philosophy is just a word, and it's mm-hmm. it's an important word, but mm-hmm. it's it's still a word that exists to serve us. And if you define it as being purely concerned with linguistic acts, that that could really be limiting and unproductive if non linguistic enterprises contribute to the sorts of things that we want philosophy to do for us. So give us a sophisticated understanding of ourselves and the words Mm -hmm. for in the world, for instance. And I mean, as with the covering term Africana philosophy, there are benefits and drawbacks to extending it so that it encompasses other uh, activities beyond producing texts. But in this case, it seems like extending the definition of philosophy is conducive to exploring these intimate relationships to use your phrase Lou between different aspects of the African diaspora and its uh, attendant traditions. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I try to do is to pry us away in some respects from the term philosophy as a male in one sense to a focus upon an activity, philosophy. Mm-hmm. And part of my argument is that anthropologically speaking, that is if we step back and take a species level view, there's no way our species can survive and persist without engaging in certain kinds of activities that professional academic philosophy has tried to capture and monopolize under its own auspices. But if you start to say, well, philosophy is concerned with the political questions of love, my response is show me any population of human beings who persisted across several generations who have not wrestled with fundamental questions about the meaning of life. Right. Mm -hmm. And they did not go to any graduate school of philosophy to get the preparations for doing so. They did not wait for anyone to write a text that they had to read or a journal article in order for them to have to take up those questions. Should I jump off the side of this boat and end my life? Or should I continue into what I know not what the hell is gonna come next? What should I do? If I'm an enslaved woman, I'm raped by a white master or his son or somebody working on the plantation, and I know in a short time that I'm pregnant, what do I do? Do I abort this pregnancy? Or do I carry this child to turn, bring it into this world 
if I'm raped by the master of the house who has a wife and children, when this, when I'm working in this house, when this, when his wife begins to see that my stomach is growing, it's not going to take her much to figure out that I'm pregnant. And when that baby is born, if she sees this baby and I've got the darkest of skin and this child is mocha, Mm. she's going to know something is up. Do I bring a child into this circumstance? Or should I abort it? My guess is overwhelmingly the black women in that situation carried those children to turn, brought them into the world, knowing, knowing that they had no control over the future lives of that child and could not prevent that child from being taken for them and sold into enslavement. And yet they brought them in, loved the hell out of them as best they could. Why? Why? Why bring a child into that kind of world? And keep telling children, someday we shall be free, singing about it, praying about it. I mean, it, it to me is just utterly extraordinary. Utterly extraordinary that these people did this. They went to no graduate school. They read no text in existentialism. They read no text in metaphysics. Still, they had deep senses about life, living, futurity, patience, determination, generosity. I mean, a black enslaved woman making milk in her breast because she has a child, taking out her breast and allowing the baby of a slave owner to suffer from her breast to get nourishment and growth. Generosity? The word just doesn't seem to me to be anywhere near adequate to capture what this woman is doing. Why? That's, that's, to me, the wrestling with the meaningfulness of life and what they would have their lives be about, to me, could not happen without thoughtfulness. You have to think about this. Will I give my breast milk to the baby of a slave owner? Yep, come here, baby. This baby needs some food. Mama can't make milk. I'll feed this baby. I'm not going to let this baby die off. I'll let my watch. Takes off her breasts. Let's this baby supple with her breasts. Why? Fuck. And there's no way you're going to convince me she did not think about what she was doing and why she was born. In other words, she philosophized. Hmm.
Russell the Simple Fall, ethical questions in a moment of deep existential challenge. Mm-hmm. He didn't wait for Socrates. Did not wait for Sartre. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the story we've been trying to bring to the fore for considerations by others. Mm-hmm. GK, do you have any final thoughts? Mm. Well, no, he's still living. There won't be any final thoughts from GK until, <laughs> uh, until the, he takes his last breath. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I hope, I hope whatever I offer now is not final in that in that uh, <laughs> in that more serious sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, you know, I I'm very proud of the work that I've done with the History of Africana Philosophy podcast together with Peter Adamson, and uh, you know, I I bring it up even relation to what we were just saying about music because there was a series of episodes we did with a focus on music and you know and those who listen to the podcast know that you know we usually have the same sort of opening music every time but we sort of changed that up for this for these three episodes um you know one episode on afrofuturism where where an important jazz artist, uh, Sun Ra, was one of the people we were talking about, and then also uh, Parliament Funkadelic um, uh, also gets a lot of focus in that episode. But then, you know, then we go to Jamaica, you know, and talk about reggae and Rastafari, right? And and you know, th- there's arguments you could make about reggae being one of the most philosophically rich forms of music in the world. And I think that you could probably get to that argument by first of all, thinking about Rastafari, right? Um, uh, as a religious and social movement, right? Which uh, entails also a lot of thinking, even about language, right? And so, so, you know, we've done a lot of talk today about about precise terms, right? And so there's ways in which even the question of how you would uh, refer to yourself, right? In in Jamaican Patois, the normal way to refer to yourself would be like, me, like, me, I go, go somewhere or something like that, right? But that me, which, you know, is coming from the English word me, right? So that is what we sort of, that's what we usually treat in, in standard English as the the object of a sentence, right? And Rastafari does this thing where I becomes uh, the way of, refer- of, of referring to yourself, even when it's in the object point of the object uh, position of the, of the sentence. And so something like, she loves me, right? Would be like, she love I, right? And, and, and so, there, so there's, even within that, right, a lot of, uh creative thought in terms of what freedom requires right that's going on there so so we look at reggae and rastafari and then and then we and then we go back to the continent you know to talk about fela kuti who was a nigerian 
singer. We also talk in that same episode about a cousin of his, Wole Shayinka, who is a writer, right? Uh, but, um, you know, I, what I would highlight with Fela, who, uh, who makes a music that he calls Afrobeat, right, is that again we see why Africana philosophy is a term that we need because Fela is at first doing a music called High Life, which originates in West Africa, but has already itself got certain influences coming from the other side of the Americas. But but what he then does is he finds his own sound, right? It is importantly affected by some time that he spends in the US and what he learns uh, from from a woman who had been involved in the Black Power movement, right? And so, 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 so the African American tradition we can say of thought, right, uh, impacts him, and therefore, as he then creates what he wants to call an original African music, right? Um, he's got influence from James Brown. He's got, in, you know, he's got influence musically and just even in terms of a of a, of a realm of thought. Right, uh, uh, that is coming from diasporic Africans, right, and uh, yeah, the that kind of circulation of ideas and styles, right, that to me is the richness of Africana philosophy. That to me is the thing that we started with, right, the fact that it's an appropriate term, not just because it does a lot of good work in terms of, you know, like, like to cover up, to cover, right, a certain large point proportion of the continent or the, or, or the history of the world's peoples is already inter interesting of it of itself. And we can always then talk about the diversity within that and what, if anything, unifies it. Right. And, and so, you know, I guess one of, I think the major points that I've been um, hammering, so to speak, is that um, rather than actually seeking, let's say something like commonality, right? Like, oh, here's the same thing that I'm seeing everybody talk about in all of these places, right? Uh, the fact that so much of um, modern Africana thought, discourse, style, music, and so on, the fact that so much of that is um, is happening through certain circulations, right? R rather than thinking about commonality, I'm asking us to think about circulation, how things are being taken from one place to another, right? How Fela is... Um, is very invested in a certain in certain traditionally Yoruba ideas of spirituality, right? And those ideas of spirituality have already had effects on the Americas through traditions like Santeria in Cuba and Candomblé in Brazil, right? Because of enslavement, right? Um, and then, you know, to wrap up here, right? Um, it's interesting that he, he, you know, he used this word Afrobeat and what has happened since then is that is that an S has been stuck on the end of it, Afrobeats. And what you'll find today is that, you know, one of the most growing important parts, right, of black music, uh, black popular music is so-called Afrobeats, right, is this stuff that is especially coming from Nigeria. And so we're thinking here of artists like Burna Boy, Wiz Kid, DeVito, um, R uh, Rima, right, um, and 
you know, these people are now selling out stadiums and so on, right? Nigeria is, Nigeria as the most populous black country in the world, right? Is starting to really take its place on a cultural level, right? Um, in a really interesting way. And, uh, you know, the, the, the New York Times put out a piece recently about the world becoming more African. And it was about uh, the way that as a matter of population demographics, uh, that as far as we can project into the near future, yes, the, the percentage of the world that is African is going to grow, right? And, and there are questions about what that means. Um, I don't want to speak too much longer. I highly encourage people to read that New York Times piece. But what I'll then just say about the work that I've done with the podcast, my hope is that the podcast helps people to think about what it means to engage seriously with African ideas and peoples um, when, you know, failing to engage with us is failing to engage with the future. Well, great note to end. And Chike Lu, thank you so much for doing this with me. I think this has been a terrific introduction to African and Africana philosophy. Africana philosophy. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart. <laughs>